Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Welcome to episode 86. A couple things right off the top. We just dropped our first ever episode of a new sub-series we're doing called The Rad Rap, where it takes a look at films that are connected in some way or another and we did we kicked everything off with the saw series we watched 10 movies so it's the most movies we've ever covered in an episode and it's awesome and we got new graphics for it also awesome if i do say so myself yeah take a look at baddad.raddad on instagram we got a sweet little comment from our friend sylvia that they were wanting very much to rewatch all the saw series but you know, people have limited time in their lives. Oh, I can't watch 10 movies? Oh, I'm not like these two knuckleheads that <laughs> yeah, watch, that watch 10 way too movies? many movies. Well, and they said that they want to kind of prioritize watching stuff that's new. And the comment we got was, so listening to your episode is going to scratch that itch instead. So if you are somebody who, you know, is really interested in revisiting all the Saw series, but doesn't have time for it, pop on our episode, or if you're never going to watch it, but you kind of want to know what the deal is, listen to our episode. Listen to our episode. Uh, so we're very excited about that. Very excited to launch a new series. And we're keeping the good times rolling. We have another Rad Wrap that's dropping this upcoming Sunday as of the release of this episode. And we're doing a whole Rad Wrap about the Edmonton International Film Festival or IFE 2023. And unlike our Saw episode, which is not spoiler-free, it's littered with spoilers, the IFE episode will be spoiler-free. So you can enter safely. <laughs> and we'll be talking about some upcoming films that 
will be good to have on your roster of things to keep an eye on as they start to make their way into cinema or onto streaming services. We watch some really excellent stuff. We love to support, you know, the film festivals that are near us um, and the work that's being done at IFE because it's really great. So we hope that you'll take a listen to that. We saw some movies that have already become our all-time favorite movies and we're so Mm -hmm. excited to share that with you. Yeah, absolutely. And what a great example. It makes me feel really good that this is coming out uh, hot off the heels of the Saw Rad Rap because it's just showing kind of the breadth of content that the Rad Rap lends itself to. So we have literally a Saw series where it is a anthology of films. But IFE is also a series because the linkage is that it's part of the same film festival. And that is kind of the ethos of the Rad Rap. Rap. Yeah, one of the things we're excited to be doing um, that was part of the impetus for creating the Rad Rap is um, when Metro, our favorite place in the world, our favorite theater in the world, does some curated series, seeing all of the films in that curated series and thinking about them collectively through the lens of whatever the curation was. And we're really excited to potentially have some of the people who curated different series on with us to talk about those films. So... As you can tell, we're really amped about this new series. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty um, sick. But we're still bringing you our regular episodes, and this is one of them. So let's get into it. Hell yeah. Okay. We kick things off by going to our favorite place in the world, Metro Cinema. And we saw the 1911 adventure drama fantasy horror film, Dante's Inferno. It was directed by, and I apologize for any mispronunciations of these very Italian names. Directed by Francesco Bertolini, off to a great start, Adolfo Padovan, Adolfo, and Giuseppe de Legerno, who is credited as a collaboration. In terms of writing credits, we have Dante Alighieri, who wrote the poem, Dante's Inferno. Cast, just some pullouts here. Salvatore Papa, great name, as Dante. Arturo Piravano as Virgilio. And uh, we'll say Augusto Milla as Lucifer. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, that tells you what this is about. (laughs) Synopsis. The classic tale of Dante's journey through heck. uh, uh, Hell for you renegades out there. Um, Loosely adapted from the divine comedy inspired by the illustrations of Gustave Doré. This historically important film stands as the first feature from Italy and the oldest fully surviving feature in the world and boasts beautiful sets and special effects that stand above other cinema of the era. Very unique synopsis, but pretty good. All right, what do you think? Dante's Inferno. So this was interesting because Metro had it with a live score. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's, it's something that is unique to what you can do with silent film, is potentially like bring a more contemporary score in or bring someone local in. And so this score was done by Ghost Cars. Um, oh, that was the artist's name? That was the artist's name. Sick yeah, name. Really, really cool name. Um, and it felt more like going to, like, the Windspear to see, like, the orchestra or something like that. And that was so special to have an experience that transcendent at Metro, like, at this place that we love so much. Um, and I thought it was really amazing that they they did that pairing i love one of the things that i love so much about metro is the way that they work with community Mm -hmm. um so having like these kind of once a month having the homicidal drag show 
pick a movie and have like a a drag set beforehand, having people in the community um, propose curated stuff and then speak before them. Like they just do great things like that. We we went to a movie um, this week that'll be talked about on a different episode that had like an organ show before it. And it's part of their organ grinder series where they bring different people every time to like play the organ before a show. And so that was something really unique about this. We've had our earplugs in because it was more like being at a concert than it was <laughs> yeah. um, just being at a movie. And it wasn't until we kind of got closer to seeing this that I that I was looking a bit more stuff up about it and found out that this is like the first ever feature horror film. Mm-hmm. And so what a way to kind of start October with the first ever feature horror film. I wanted to just speak to that quickly is that October is our favorite month of the year. And I love that we are well into creepy season right now. It, it, it fills my heart with so much joy. And I'm, I'm so grateful that we share that together, that we just love creepy pee season. It's, it's and it so doesn't great. all have to be horror, but just things that are kind of in that realm. Oh, yeah. Um, as we will see this week with the different <laughs> things we watch. Now, I do also think, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong here, that this is now the oldest film you, you and I have ever seen. I think so. Yeah. Which I, makes sense since it's one of the like first feature films ever made. Yeah. Um, and like just uh, quick thoughts on the, the musician. I thought the music accompaniment was so good. Like it felt so it was very contemporary and it's it's like atmospheric guitar music, which you don't really think of for this film, but it was done so well. And I I think that that's just such a cool artistic thing that I I don't I I don't really think about and again it it all comes back to Metro I just I love that Metro gets people to make posters for its upcoming movies and it makes me forget that like oh yeah you can just make your own version of what you like to see for a poster for a movie or you can watch a movie and cut out all of the dialogue cut off all the music and just create your own score to it and I love when people are able to get creative about things that they're passionate about. Um, I was looking up about uh, this particular film too, that there is a version of it that Tangerine Dream. Yeah, I think you can watch music. it on YouTube. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that that's really that's really cool. I feel like I don't know if it was this, but I feel like there was another silent film that was it Nosferatu. Yeah, I think Nosferatu. that Tangerine Dream also did a score for, or like. Oh, some- you know what? It might have been Metropolis. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And you can watch that on YouTube. too. That makes more sense. Yeah. There was something about seeing this very old film. And this is the thing that I do struggle with with silent films. Like I will say a silent film hasn't quite. You know, to use the language that we've stolen from Thomas Wishlov (laughs) um, over a year ago, which we continue to use, but always want to give him credit for because it's so beautiful. A silent film hasn't quite opened itself up to me yet. Like there's been I've had an ability to appreciate it. There's been moments that I'm really, really into, but I think I struggle with silent films with the like repetition of visuals over such a sustained amount of time that there's like quite a long segment that has just the same visual in it. Um, And then the kind of overacting to make up for the fact that there's no dialogue. Um, I just don't, I I have a feeling one day something's going to just like hit with me because I liked Metropolis, I liked Nosferatu, I liked this, but it, di- but I didn't love it. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, who is a more visual person, 
I even struggle with just kind of keeping up with what's going on and what to follow. And I too kind of struggle with silent films a bit. And, you know, it could also just be like, I'm a 21st century millennial simple binge that I needs a little like, ooh, ah, from my movies. Yeah. Um, but imagine seeing this in 1911. I know like like, this movie is incredible and some of the effects and stuff as it said in the synopsis are really impressive you know thinking about it from that lens so today October 8th when we're recording this is my grandpa's 99th birthday Mm -hmm. he wasn't even alive when this came out (laughs) yeah right like that's that's something Mm -hmm. and and watching this there were while I didn't I wasn't in love with it from beginning to end there were these sequences that were so visually moving Mm -hmm. and then you have this like like you like you've mentioned contemporary accompaniment by ghost cars um that was just kind of lulling me into that you i want to say too you you and i felt the same way where at first it's like okay there's a live musician to my left that i'm seeing play and then the movie's playing on the screen but eventually it just all blended together like eventually yeah. that was just the music of the movie and you just kind of were like a wash in this sea of both visual and audio experience and it was such a cool experience i really really loved it um, and yeah, there were a couple, couple key moments where I was just like, damn, like that visual is stunning or just like amazing. Like the big scene with Lucifer is yeah. like, it's, I wouldn't say it's stunning, but it's hilarious and awesome and creepy at the same time. Is all the stunning stuff, all the guy butts? No, there was too many guy butts <laughs> for me. I'm not, I'm not a butt person. Yeah, that's like fair. butts are not my not my not favorite it. thing to look at. Yeah, they are not it for me. If butts are it for you, especially guy butts with like a little Ooh, string, smorgasbord, orgasbord, <laughs> you're gonna just like not be able to handle this movie. Like, especially if you like guy butts suffering in heck, like you know, purgatory guy butts. I tell you, um, <laughs> I mean, okay, sorry, it's just butts, butts, purgatory butts. guy butts. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's a good like punk band name I'm gonna name my my next band that um I've lost my train of thought because I'm just thinking about butts now <laughs> thinking about all those butts though it's so impressive again in 1911 and and I was impressed by this when we saw Metropolis as well the number of extras that they have like the oh, number of shit. bodies on the screen oh like, yeah to my understanding that's not the easiest thing to do um, or arrange or organize or well, and when you're not for. and like you're not shooting digitally, so everybody has to be on point doing the right <laughs> thing at the right time. So many lamenting souls in this, I <laughs> yeah. tell you. Um, yeah, so it was just this thing of like gratitude. Yeah, like gratitude for the history of cinema, gratitude for the history of horror cinema specifically. As we enter October, it's been such an interesting journey. You know, we're over well over a year into doing this and when your mom first started listening to our show and I think she kind of pops in and out mm-hmm. one of the things she said to you is I didn't know that you guys liked horror so much and I didn't know that you specifically my son loved horror so much <laughs> yeah and you were like yeah I always have and mm-hmm. I think that horror is something that we are consistently watching throughout an entire year but getting to just like revel in it with everybody else and love it so much and like put it on a pedestal in October is so fun yeah. And to that too, like, you know, thinking about my mom saying that after she said that, I was kind of filled with a little bit of pride because as I've recounted many times across the many episodes of this podcast, is that horror, growing up, horror was uniquely mine 
in yes. in my family. Yeah, me too. Except with my, it was just me and my dad. Yeah, no one else liked it. Yeah, like my oldest sister would like partake, but I wouldn't say she loved it. Yeah, like my dad would pop in every once in a while. My mom really liked Stephen King, which I'll get into a little bit later, and. My aunt and uncle were more yeah. on my mom's side were more into horror stuff. But in terms of my immediate household, like I was the one seeking out horror movies and interested in the horror movies and wanting to watch them. And it was just so uniquely me. So to see to hear my mom say that just was very validating for me that this is a unique piece of my personality yeah. that I didn't adopt from yeah. my parents necessarily. And now we have it together. I, I so love cool. that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's one of my so favorite good. parts of my life. Um, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, I, I'm excited for the day that a silent film opens itself up to me. But right now I'm just kind of in this stage of I'm, I'm happy to go and watch these films. And I'm so appreciative yeah. of what they're doing and what they have done for the history of cinema. I have a couple points on that I want to mention. Um, so when this came out, 1911, remember? Yeah. It grossed over $2 million. Holy shit. Yeah, which is wild. And I'd like to know what that is for inflation. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't look that up because math, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> um, but because of that, because it was like doing so well and because of its length. So while it's not the first feature film ever made, it is the first feature film to screen in its entirety at once. So prior to this, feature films were broken up episodically and shown over like a month or two in segments in a theater. Oh, I hate that. But I mean, think of it, if short films are really the only thing being made, then that's, and it also keeps people coming back, right? So this was the first- This actually ties it really well with our rad wreck. It does. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is our like first feature film to be shown in its entirety in on one screen across so cool. the world, but it's also what caused them to raise ticket prices for movies. <laughs> And right. so there's this interesting like art of cinema, the, you know, the ways that like theater houses run, but then also capitalism <laughs> kind of like working hand in hand here. So yeah. I thought that that was really interesting. Now here's a, you know, to get into not guy butts, but guy fronts. This was the first movie <laughs> to ever show male frontal nudity. And there wasn't another one until 1969. Whoa. Yeah. What? Yeah. Do you know what that one was? Uh, I, I, I did, but it like wasn't a movie we'd ever heard of. Oh. 1969? I mean, nice. Yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. But also that's, uh, what, 58 years? That's wild. What the fuck? And I mean, I think that's because in this film, it's not done in a sexual way. Yeah. And there's a difference. There's a difference in nudity that's existing just because that's what would like, because that's real bodies. Or nudity that's existing to like titillate, mm -hmm. um, or nudity that's just like very close up in your face, a la Euphoria. Hate that. Mm -hmm. Don't watch it anymore. Um, and in this one, like I couldn't even told, tell you where the guy fronts were because there was it, fronts and a, backs. Yeah, there was just a lot of bodies. Yeah, um, it's certainly not sexy. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> I mean, maybe for certain people, but definitely not for me. So yeah, there's some interesting just early cinema stuff going on in this and so cool. Yeah, absolutely. How did it make you feel? It made me feel gratitude for early horror and also for the unique local collaborations enabled by Metro Cinema. That's lovely. Yeah, it made me feel impressed, appreciative, 
and attention challenged. <laughs> Fair. And that's my own problem. Yeah, like I said, I'm a simple binge and the ADHD meds might have been running a little low when we went and saw this. <laughs> yeah. So, And we had just had like a family gathering. Yeah. So stimulated and then going to a silent film, maybe a little irregulated, irregulated. <laughs> you are struggling. Okay. We're keeping that October train rolling by me getting to pick a movie that you had never seen, which I've been wanting to show you for. It's not true, but I'll get into that in a second. You told me you'd never seen it. I have seen it, but I only seen it on on TV. This changes everything. You're a liar. <laughs> yeah. You're dishonest. Oh, <laughs> oh, you're deceptive. <laughs> you're supposed to be my lab partner. <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, I picked a movie I thought you'd never seen, but I I have been talking about wanting to watch this movie for 14 years. And it hasn't been on any streaming sites. And then this summer I endeavored to catalog. I'm going to talk a lot about my cataloging this episode. Mm-hmm. I made an Excel sheet of all of the movies we own so that like we can just quickly check if we own something and also like cataloging it both digitally because we own some films digitally that we don't own physical copies of. Um, and when I was making this list, I realized there was quite a few things. You haven't seen the last of it that I didn't realize we had a copy of that isn't currently on a streaming site. And so I picked The People Under the Stairs. 1991 comedy horror mystery directed and written by Wes Craven himself. It stars Brandon Quinton Adam as Fool, Everett McGill as Man, Wendy Roby as Woman, A.J. Langer as Alice, Ving Rames as Leroy, and Sean Whalen as Roach. The synopsis is two adults and a juvenile break into a house occupied by a brother and sister and their stolen children. There they must fight for their lives. <laughs> what did you think of the people under the stairs? I mean, a couple things right off the bat. I, I really, like I said, I had maybe only seen this once and maybe only half watching it and it was on TV. So it was made for TV version and it had commercials. Did you remember it at all? Not Really, I like there's very there's very weird pieces of it, but I feel like and here's the thing of why I would have probably told you I hadn't seen it is that I feel like I may have conflated it with other horror or thriller movies that I also watched on TV during that time. Like I feel like around the time TBS Superstation was on in my house quite a bit. So I feel like I might have conflated it with like Kate Fear with Robert De Niro mm. or like single white female or like those are all very different movies, I know but, but I feel like I I might have mixed some of them up so I'm I would say I haven't seen this but I've seen it so um, very like very different experiences then because this is this is when I watched like decently often and I had it in my mind that it was more of a like young adult horror film than it is and I think that's because Fool is a kid. And like, I didn't know that. I, I also like really didn't realize the comedy part of it. Like it leads with comedy in the list of genres. And it's not funny when you're like seven watching it. Let me tell you, it's scary. Well, and the title itself is scary. I think the title of this movie is one of the best titles of any movie ever, but especially horror movies like the people under the stairs. That is horrifying. And I think that that does a lot of the work of making it scary. Well, there's something about 
not burying the lead of what the movie's about. Yes. Like, this is. And we're waiting for the is. moment where the people are under the stairs. <laughs> yes. Um, and the cover's really creepy with like the house, like that archetypal creepy like, house on the corner, but then with that like skull superimposed over top in the of sky. it. Like, and like so like yeah. looming in that kind of like dark mark death eater way. Yeah. See, like also, I've never seen Fright Night, but if you've seen the cover yeah, of Fright totally. Night, that always scared me when I was a kid. No, it is. It's a creepy cover. It's a creepy title. And, you know, like so in watching it now and I haven't watched it in so long, but I did watch it like decently often as a kid. Did you own it or did you rent it? My dad had satellite at the lounge that he owned and he got like special movie channels and Mm -hmm. he would tape movies on VHS and bring them home. And so we had like a shit ton of movies on VHS. And, and recently my mom actually gave us a bunch of them. Um, she gave us like like one that has Crybaby on it. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we're not going to keep all of these like bootleg VHSs. <laughs> but I, I think having a couple with like they all have my dad's handwriting on them. Yeah. They're, they're pretty nice. Yeah. It's pretty special. So this I believe this is one that was like bootleg copy off of satellite Mm. and my dad would kind of bring those home. But he also then was like curating it. Like what did he see on satellite that he wanted to bring home either for himself or for all of us? And this one really, it really scared me. I thought revisiting it that it would be less scary and it both is and isn't because there's a couple really like gnarly effects moments that I'm like, this is probably too much for a little kid. Yeah. There's some intense stuff. And this won't be the first time that we revisit a movie that one or both of us liked as children and be like, holy shit, who was allowing us to watch this? Yeah. (laughs) Like, (laughs) you know, it's a little bit of a, a little bit of an issue. But what I do love about it is that it is a creepy premise. Title's great. The marketing around it is very creepy, but it is so fun. Like it is another prime example of Wes Craven just having fun in the genre that he's known for. Uh, And it's no wonder he goes on to create one of the, best franchises and best horror movies about horror movies in Scream. And I think I, I like Wes Craven best when he's in that middle ground of comedy, commentary, and genu- genuine horror, which I think the people under the stairs is. Mm-hmm. When he's full bleak, like in Last House on the Left, The Hills Have Eyes, like it's it's almost, it's not almost, it is too much for me. Mm-hmm. It's really upsetting in a way that I don't really want to revisit. But like Nightmare on Elm Street is doing that too. Like yes. Freddy is wacky and dreams are wild and there's there's humor infused in that. But, but also, it's also terrifying. Oh, it has some of the scariest shit in it. So, so that's so my favorite sandbox that he plays in. Mm-hmm. And I also, I think that Wes Craven has a consistent focus on using the horror genre as a way to say something mm-hmm. in all of his films. Um this feels so relevant now because a big part of this is like landlords and wealth hoarders, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a big part of the conversation in our world always, but it feels like it's hitting a a point where people want to do something about it, want to fight back right now. But also I was reading a lot of stuff, um, a couple of things from folks I follow on Letterboxd who are people of color who said like, you know, this was one of the first times that they saw a film, a horror film specifically with a black protagonist that isn't just there to die. Yeah. And that is a hero and, and a, and a black kid. Yeah. You know, and, and I compared this, it has kind of a Goonies ish feel, but make it horror and make it one person, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that that's, 
We also got to see Night of the Living Dead in the theater this week. We've covered it on the show before. Episode two. Fucking killer episode. <laughs> yeah. Go revisit episode two or if you've like come to us recently and not gone to our back catalog. Episodes like one, two, three, four. Real good. When we're bright eyed, bushy tailed. Audio is not as amazing as it is now. <laughs> but, you know, it's. it's hey, you got to start somewhere. Got to start somewhere. You know? um, and I think that's just it's one of the things I'm feeling a lot of gratitude for this week in our particular beginning of October is the way that horror allows a medium to say something about the world in such a sharp and cutting way. Um, Night of the Living Dead is so fucking bleak. It's so fun until it's not fun anymore. Mm -hmm. And this one is saying, this one is really fun, especially at the end. And it's saying something really important. And the way that Wes Craven writes, like spoke about it when he was alive is really interesting. I have a couple quotes from him. So one, he said, quote, the people under the stairs is much closer to the hills have eyes than anything I've done in a long time. It's a raw film with no dreams in it whatsoever. It's an extraordinary real situation involving an awful family that shouldn't exist, but unfortunately often does. And it represent the family represents the whole society of the United States. Wow. That's actually super powerful. Like even just that line, it represents, it's represents a family that shouldn't exist, but often does, but often does. Wow. So even when he's, it's so interesting to me that he, as the filmmaker looking at his oeuvre, he says, I actually see this in line with the Hills have eyes. Whereas we were kind of saying, you know, it's in nightmare on Elm street and scream territory and that it's like fun. But what he's saying is there's no magic to it. There's no fantasy to it. This is real fucking life. Mm -hmm. And that's what he was doing with the Hills have eyes as well. And I was the last house on the left. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting to me that that's how he saw the film. And, and I think the film is that, mm -hmm. but it also isn't so bleak that we can't because it's not so bleak. It's something you might want to revisit more often. And I think that the message of it today is so, so relevant. Now, one of the things that also kind of became a thread this week in an interesting way is white male filmmakers or, you know, thinking Night of the Living Dead, which we, we aren't covering because we've already covered it. But somebody who, you know, George Romero is not a black man. He is a person of color, but giving their voice to other people who don't have the same ability to have their voices heard. And, you know, that's happening with people under the stairs in the next movie we're going to talk about. And I think it's so important. We need that step. We need people who have power to say, I'm going to, like, give you the podium here. Mm hmm. And then have that shift into those people getting to have the voice. So one of the things that I don't know if you know, but is so, so exciting is that they are looking at making a remake of this. Mm -hmm. And Jordan Peele's the one who signed on to do Holy it. shit. Yeah. Oh my God. That'd be so and I awesome. Don't, I don't imagine it would be a remake, but a reimagining. Like a, right? And so I love that idea of like Wes Craven creates a film that allows a black boy, a little black boy to be a hero mm -hmm. but he is not a black man but that's a step that we need we need white people to give the voice to other folks when they're not getting a chance to make films that are seen by as many people and that eventually becomes a lineage of jordan peele getting to take that film and say i'm going to do something with it on my own it feels like Candyman too right it feels mm -hmm. like nia DaCosta getting to make Candyman and like taking that mantle up and being like you started this, but now it gets to be ours. Yeah. 
I love that. Oh, fuck, that made me so excited. And I know. I, I'm like in my mind, I'm already like trying to like cast it, <laughs> but I'm basically just seeing the cast of Get Out. <laughs> like it's just like Bradley Whitmore. Is that his name? Yeah. Uh, and um, Catherine, Keener. Catherine Keener as the <laughs> as the mom and dad as as man mom and, and daddy man and woman or whatever. And then Daniel Kaluuya, Kaluuya is uh, Vinnie Rames' character. And then get somebody young to play fool. I mean, I think. Like what I don't think Wes Craven is doing as intentionally is like the racial politics of this. I think he's looking a lot more at like the class, class politics yeah. and in that he positions people of color as the people like kind of rebelling against the like white wealthy people, which I think is accurate, but he's not intentionally exploring racial politics and Jordan Peele would get to do that. He'd get to mm -hmm. take this thing that's there subtextually and and develop it in a nuanced way. And so I, I, I that's fucking love it. Yeah. so sweet. I think it would be really, really great. I think it'd be, that'd be like so pitch perfect. Cause I feel like of people making horror movies today of just any, of anybody, I feel like Jordan Peele has such a good lock on being able to make things absolutely horrifying, but also bringing humor into it. And, and and they're whip smart and they have something really important to say, but they're fun. Like Nope is one of my favorite movies I've ever seen in my life. So, oh, yeah. so exciting. That's great. Two last things I want to say about this is uh, mom and dad or mommy and daddy, man and woman are played by Big Ed and Nadine from Twin Peaks, which we're currently rewatching, although it has sure taken a backseat to the Saw series. We busy. We busy. Um, so that was really fun. And then also one of your favorite movies of all time, that thing you do. The, their biggest fan from that thing you do is isn't Roach. That, isn't that our fan? <laughs> That's so, so, funny. so funny. He's also, you've probably seen it. Maybe I'll show it to you later. But he was in the very famous Got Milk commercial where he was eating peanut butter and he had to call in to uh, a radio station to win like the big prize of like who killed Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> and he. We he, all know that now. And, and so he calls in. And he's like, boo, boo, but his mouth is filled with peanut butter. And they're like, what? He's like, boo, boo. And Aaron Burr? And the, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Bill Bird, the, com <laughs> the comedian. Killed Alexander, killed Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton. But And then he goes to grab his milk, but he's out of milk. And then it <gasps> ends with got milk. Oh, we'll have to put a link to that. It's uh, And like he's surrounded by all his ephemera from being such a fan of like Alexander Hamilton. And the OG Alexander Hamilton fan. It's so good. You know what? We'll put a link in the description because uh, it's, su it's such a good ad. Um, and he's in it. He's lovely. Yeah, some great little Kamskis, or not Kamskis, some great like feature roles um, from people that we've seen in smaller roles and other things. But I think I just want to end with that I was impressed with how well this film held up me that it's it was something that scared me as a kid and introduced me to horror as a kid that definitely I don't think is supposed to be for kids <laughs> and it made me feel so so icky it's got that flowers in the attic kind of thing going on um but seeing it now and being able to appreciate the like social commentary and like where Wes Craven stands in like the history of horror is so exciting um this is ultimately a film about like kinship and community activism and like coalition against like particularly wealth hoarders. And I think that's so cool. Um, mm -hmm. And I love that. Some stick it to the maniosis. I love that there's some big middle fingers being raised to, to that mm -hmm. world. And 
I think it's a, I think it's a film well worth checking out if you've never seen it and revisiting it if you haven't seen it in a while. Agreed. Copy that. How did People Under the Stairs make you feel? Surprised and tickled by its madness. <laughs> yeah, it is. A, it's quite the ride. Yeah. Super fun. How did it make you feel? It made me feel along for both the ride and the political commentary. Hell yeah. And Jordan Peele. If it's true, cannot wait. I do wish um, the character of man does say the N word once. And I, I don't think that was necessary. They have like a moment with it later. That's like very, um, the harder they fall that mm. I really liked. And I think that would have been enough. Like mm-hmm. we get that they're racist wealth hoarding Fox and we didn't need that. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, uh, like big Ed. No. Yeah. Not, not, not totally necessary looking at it from a 2023 perspective. Yeah. Okay, take us somewhere else. Okay. This is one we've teased here or there throughout the show about revisiting. And we're finally revisiting it. Here's my mystery movie pick. And I wanted to watch the 1986 action adventure comedy, Big Trouble in Little China. It was directed by John Carpenter and is written by Gary Goldman and David S. Sorry, David Z. Weinstein, uh, as well as it was adapted from a piece by W.D. Richter. It stars Kurt Russell as Jack Burton, Kim Cattrall as Gracie Law, Dennis Dunn as Wang Chi, Gong Gong himself, Big Daddy James Hong as David Lopan, and Victor Wong as Egg Shen. Synopsis, a rough-and-tumble trucker and his sidekick. I wouldn't call Wang Chi his sidekick. I'll just say his friend. Uh, face off with an ancient sorcerer in a supernatural battle beneath Chinatown. Okay, we got some history with this movie. Yeah. What do you think of Big Trouble in Little China? Should we start with the history? Yeah, probably. I mean, I feel like we've alluded to this throughout the prior 85 plus episodes that we've done. Um, but anyone who's been listening for any length of time knows that action movies are not my fave. Mm-hmm. And I struggle with them, but I'm much better at them now and I'm much more open to films that I would have written off before sometimes you do show me an action movie a la mission impossible where i'm just like i hated that i don't ever want to watch it again but i'm not a dink from the get-go i'm kind of like okay let's give it a go mm-hmm. um maybe i was a bit of a dink with die hard 2 3 die hard 3 <laughs> <laughs> whatever one you made me watch um so i want to say this was our first year that we were dating because we still yeah. lived at home and when i was thinking about this i was thinking about the way we used to watch movies mm. And I think about this often when like my students talk about watching like movies and TV, they're often watching them on their cell phones or their laptops. And you know, it's that, that thing when you're still living with your parents or you're still living in a space where you have a room, but not a whole like apartment or more space that's yours. Right. Where you often are watching things in like the one space in the property that is yours. So a bedroom, right? Right. Um, And we used to watch things like this, right? We watched most of Dexter on a laptop. Mm -hmm. Um, We often were like laying in bed with a laptop on one of our knees Mm -hmm. watching something. Just burning our our, (laughs) our laptops. Yeah, killing our laps. (laughs) Um, And you and I both had TVs in our rooms, but they weren't the biggest TVs. And then when we were watching them, we were watching them in bed, right? So we'd be like laying down, being kind of lazy, that kind of thing. And I feel like it wasn't as intentional as when we watch film now. So you wanted me to watch this movie and I didn't want to watch it. 
Mm-hmm. But you convinced me to watch it by telling me that the main character's name was Jack Burton, which is true. That's not a lie. <laughs> and I somehow cared about that because my grandpa on the one who's turning 99 today, who has turned 99 today, his name is Jack. It's on my maternal side. So his last name isn't Burton, but my my last name is Burton. And I thought that was cool, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so cool. I watched it. It is cool. Jack Burton's a great name. If we had had a kid and it had been a boy, we would have named it Jack. And given it and given him your last name. Obviously, my last name is so good. <laughs> and also, Jackass does not sound no, good. It sounds like Jackass. <laughs> um, so I watched it like 14 years ago. And I hated it. And I literally don't remember anything about it. All I remember is that you convinced me to watch it and I didn't like it. Mm. It's possible I even fell asleep. Because I really, honestly, didn't remember a single thing about it. When we watched this movie, nothing came back to me. Do you have a memory from that time when we watched this? I I just remember watching it and being excited to show it to you. And then, yeah, you hated it. I'm like, oh, fuck. That sucks. Early in our relationship. And, and then I'm we just, never touched it again. We never touched it again. So I was a bit of a dinkus about it. I have been open to watching it. Since we started the mystery movie picks, I've known that this was going to come up. I'm sure you're <laughs> eventually going to make me watch Monty Python too, which is another one that I really genuinely hate. And I think I will still hate it, but we'll see when you eventually make me watch it. You have tried once and I vetoed it. Very early on in our mystery movie yeah. pick journey. I, I was like, nope, not tonight. Um, so when it came up, I was like, okay, don't be a dinkus. Take that mystery movie ethos that we've created, which is the idea of somebody has specifically picked this either to show it to me because it means something to show it to me or because they're really excited for it mm-hmm. or a combination of both. So be open to that experience. First thing I'll say is it's not as actiony as I remember it being. There are a couple extended action sequences, and honestly, I was a little like bored during them still. But it's not as it's not action from beginning to end. No. So there's that. Yeah. <laughs> um, tell me why you like this film so much. Tell me about your history with Big Trouble in Little China. I so I grew up on this, <laughs> like I. Again, probably watching it too young, but as I mentioned before, my aunt on my mom's side, so my Aunt Wendy, I can't remember if it was for a birthday or Christmas or just because, but she gifted me two VHS tapes together, and I've always associated them together because that's how they were presented to me. And she got me the movie, the Jackie Chan movie, Rumble in the Bronx, and she got me Big Trouble in Little China. Do you know how old you were? I don't, but like under 10, I feel. <laughs> yeah, your Aunt Wendy and your Uncle Aaron, brother and sisters to your mom, mm-hmm. they were a huge part of your like movie education. Oh, yeah. Like in summers, there were there was a period of summers where my Aunt Wendy lived uh, in Hinton. So that's about a three hour ish drive away from Edmonton. But I would go there for like a week or two over the summer. And I was always so excited because that meant I got to see new horror movies or thriller movies that I didn't watch. Like it was at her place that I saw seven for the first time. And I really Um, hope we get to be that for at least one of our nibblings. Yeah. And that's also the first time I sat down and watched all of Salem's lot. (laughs) (laughs) Like I always, always excited about that. And like at one point when I was really young, my aunt Wendy lived in our house And she watched this show. I think it was called like the hilarious house of Dr. Frankenstein or something. Like it was like a 
comedy talk show ish thing that was in black and white. It was super dusty, but it had like Frankenstein and Dracula and like other monsters like doing comedy bits and stuff. But I would like go down on like Saturday mornings and we would like chill in our room and watch it. And I just have very fond memories of that. But yeah, she she gave this to me and I watched them religiously. I I loved this movie. I always had so much fun with it because it is fun. And I love how dialed up everything in this movie is. Yeah, it's like it's cranking things to an 11. Yeah. And it's very accessible in that there's good guys and there's bad guys. And there <laughs> it, it just moves. Like there's not a lot of downtime yeah, in this movie. It, it's it's quick. Yeah. Like the dialogue's quick. The cuts are quick. So this is, I see this movie really in the same light that I see people under the stairs in that you've got a white director who is casting a lot of non-white people. And I mean, there's definitely some, it was funny, our friend Ashley told me that she saw her partner watching this recently and was like, that's racist! Because <laughs> she just caught a clip of it. And certainly if you see a clip of it, it would seem so. And I mean, we're definitely not the people who get to speak on on that or not. But I do think the film is attempting to subvert the way that Asian Americans have been depicted on screen, particularly in, when was this made? Nineteen. 1986 right and so I see this as like you know John Carpenter as a white man like Wes Craven with the people under the stairs casting folks who aren't often getting these kinds of roles and I have a quote from um, Dennis Dunn where he said quote I'm seeing Chinese actors getting to do stuff that American movies usually don't let them do I've never seen this type of role for an Asian in an American film and I see this like I was saying with like you know you've got Jordan Peele and you've got Nia DaCosta um, and we've uh, you know taking up the mantle and saying we get to tell the story, the, the horror stories with black people on screen now, mm -hmm. but thank you Wes Craven for like casting somebody initially. Now, now it's ours. Yeah. Um, I think there's a line from big trouble in little China to everything everywhere all at once. hundred percent. Literally with Gong Gong. Yeah. Literally <laughs> with James Hong and you know, Daniel Kwan getting to make a film like that. And that's still having the co same conversations with um, Kihi Kwan saying like, there aren't roles like this. And I think that's different because a movie like Big Trouble in Little China positions the character of Wang Chi as a hero mm -hmm. and as the competent one. Um, and John Carpenter said like one of his goals with this was to subvert the, the white man with a Asian sidekick. Mm -hmm. And that uh, <laughs> he said, um, well, actually Kurt Russell said this about the character of Jack Burton. He said, he quote, he's a hero who has so many faults. Jack is and isn't the hero. He falls on his ass as much as he comes through. This guy's a real blowhard. He's a lot of hot air, very self-assured to screw up. At heart, he thinks he's Indiana Jones, but the circumstances are always too much for him. And then John Carpenter said like he wanted a white guy who thinks he's the leading man, but is the sidekick. Yeah, that, that's a perfect description of it because there's no way that the story would play out the way that it does by the end if he wasn't, if he didn't have the support of Wang and Gracie Law and Egg Shen and all of these other surrounding people who actually are competent. Yeah. And who care about their community. Like he's also an outsider to the community, right? Yeah. And we see that like with the people under the stairs, we see this idea of coalition across differences of race because of like geographically where you live, where Kim Cattrall 
Chinatown is her community. Mm -hmm. She is an insider in it, despite the fact that she's not Asian. And there's a camaraderie and a kinship between her and um, Wang Chi and other folks in the film that Jack Burton doesn't have because he's an outsider coming into this space. And I think like with Wes Craven, perhaps John Carpenter and the writers don't have quite a lock on the racial politics of it, but there's something starting there and there's something different from what we've typically seen in 1986 at that time from an American movie. Mm -hmm. There's certainly like great movies being made elsewhere, like in, like in China that are awesome that, that, have complicated and nuanced depictions of Asian folks. Mm-hmm. Now, when I look at like Ki Kwan and Michelle Yeoh talking about like not having the opportunity to play characters, like what they played in everything everywhere all at once. I think what we're seeing is that shift from just being a leading person to having an emotionally complex, nuanced emotional journey in a film mm-hmm. that we need to move from just, okay, well we're seeing somebody who hasn't typically been depicted as a hero or as competent or as capable or as sexual or whatever Mm -hmm. to somebody who gets to have like a really rich interior life. Yeah. And I think that there, there's some really beautiful moments. Yeah. We don't quite get there with this, but there's a, there's a specific moment in this where our, our heroes have just kind of gotten out of peril and Jack Burton is like, laughing joyous like holy shit we did it but then we cut to uh somebody asking like where's mao yin and then we cut to a very sad close-up on wang where he's like she's inside like she's still inside like yeah the thing we came here to do we failed to do Mm -hmm. and i think that that on this watch just packs so much of a punch because there's this very arrogant brusque american that's just like Oh fuck, like we like blasted our way out of there and like things are like thumbs up, but like that is not why they were there. Mm-hmm. And they didn't succeed. And yeah, like I feel like they're they're toying with that idea of getting more emotionally complex. But yeah, we're we're just not at a period of time where that's gonna happen in this film. And I and you know, it's still a period of time where even though thematically and character wise, the film is subvert subverting some of the typical films in this genre that have been made in America, still Kurt Russell is the lead. Yeah. Well, he may not in the journey of the film be the hero. He is the lead actor. Mm-hmm. He's um, on all the posters. He's, he, and he's the protagonist. Like he, yeah. he is, it's, it's his journey to get his money back or to get this money that Wang Chi owes him from their like poker or whatever they played mm-hmm. that, is his impetus for being on this journey. And, you know, you got to start somewhere. Yeah. And so I definitely like appreciated that. And, and I think watching this film this time made me really appreciate like how my journey of film is changing. Like a, I think I'm just a person who's not as grouchy as I used to be. Although I did really relate to Jack Burton (laughs) because I can be um, a bit of a grouch, a bit of a cynic. (laughs) Um, but I think that I am more open to understanding what other people love about a film, even if it's not my favorite. Mm-hmm. And so since watching this 14 years ago and being a total asshole about it, I understand John Carpenter better. Like mm-hmm. I just know his oeuvre better. Um, Cause this isn't that far away from like a, they live. No, no. And, and I would say like, I am more the thing Halloween than I am. They live big trouble in little China, mm-hmm. but I do like both. They live and big trouble in little China. Like, you know, 
news alert, news alert headline. I liked Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> um, but it isn't my favorite thing of his I've seen. I don't think I like it as much as you. And it is because, first of all, I think John Carpenter's films have a certain like wall in them. There's a certain like emotional opaqueness mm-hmm. that isn't what I look for in any type of art. Right. Um, that kind of keeps me from totally connecting with it even when I really like it. And then, and then it is, yeah. it is an action movie and it is a little bit slapstick and it is a little bit silly, which is more your thing than it is my thing. Mm-hmm. What I came away from this with is like an appreciation for how I have opened my mind to other genres of film, how I have different skill sets in film mm-hmm. and my ability to always like now look at where that film stands in the history of the genre and of cinema as a whole. Mm. Like, so looking at this as like part of John Carpenter's oeuvre, part of, um, representations of Asian Americans on film, like all of these different ways to look at it. But then also that I'm just like better at watching action movies than I used to be. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm grateful for that too. And I'm, I'm happy that you're able to recognize that and see that about and see that growth in yourself and us revisiting it this many years later that you're able to enjoy it with me. I think it'd be really fun on the big screen. I agree. Have they done it at Metro and we didn't go? I feel like maybe. Maybe, but it would have been a while ago. Yeah, yeah. I feel I but I I would like to see it on the big screen. Yeah. They didn't do it when they did their recent Carpenter. No. No, it wasn't. I don't think so. Yeah. Just like a few highlights for me about this movie. Uh it's really near and dear to my heart. I love it a lot. I mean, I think Mr. James Hong kills it. Lopan is creepy. Oh, very creepy. And the diff- there's different iterations of him that are creepy in their own ways that I I really like. And there's, and there's some creepy creatures, but also they're a little goofy. But I, I <laughs> they're li- a little like labyrinth. <laughs> but I like the uh, like. There's some great effects, both practical and CGI in this. That like <laughs> great CGI. <laughs> great in like a super fun yeah at the movies kind of way and. There, yeah, there's not a lot of action, but there are some great action set pieces that if that is your jam, they're super fun yeah. to watch. Um, I love, I, I quite love Kim Cattrall as Gracie Law. I love her one line of, don't panic, it's only me, Gracie Law. <laughs> um, th- this also has one of my absolute favorite cold opens in cinema. Like, I love how the movie opens and it's just Egg Shen talking to... I feel like I need to watch that scene again because it didn't really mean anything to me yeah, at the beginning. Yeah, that's fair. Um, Especially because it's a cold open, so you don't know. You didn't know yeah. for sure what we were watching and what the context was, but it it's just this dialogue between two people, and it's buttoned so awesome. And then we cut into our introduction to Jack Burden and the ki- Shop Express and the fucking killer score. That is yeah. in this movie. John Carpenter, man, he knew how to write a write something that would just elevate the film. Yeah, I've been since watching this. He has he put out a um, an album. I think it's called Lost Themes, and it's just like a bunch of music that he's written that he just collected. And there's a song on there. I think it's called Vortex. I've just been listening to it on repeat because it's it just fucking rips. It's also in the lineage of like music you really like like um like the drive yeah like synth pop yeah um new wave shit like that's oh, man it's a it's a really good Chef's score good. it's a fun movie i i think i really like kurt russell 
Mm-hmm. And I was like Wikipedia him and he's been with Goldie Hawn for like ever. And they moved to Vancouver. So his like kid could play hockey <laughs> and he just seems like a decent guy. I hope that, I mean, we never know, but mm-hmm. I like that he's been with the same person forever and that he lives in Canada. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always, I always feel this fondness for like directors and, and actors who like continue to work together mm-hmm. that like there obviously must be something about both of those people that like they each really enjoy to continue working together and mm-hmm. that he was in so many John Carpenter works. I mean, I think shows that and he, you know, he's in the one Quentin Tarantino movie I still really love, which is <laughs> yeah. death proof. Um, and yeah. he's great in that. So, yeah. and I'm team Kim Cattrall in the, uh, Kim Cattrall SJP drama. Oh yeah. I am team Kim Cattrall. Agreed. Um, haven't seen it in a while, but go watch her show on HBO. What was it called? (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember, but I really liked it. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. Um, yeah, don't watch the, and and then then it happened or and and then it and so it goes whatever the, the fucking and so it goes whatever the fucking new Sex of the City spinoff sensitive is. skin sensitive skin go it was a limited series I think or if it's just like a couple seasons can't fully remember two seasons and and it was quite good yeah so seek that out she's Canadian so yeah lovely lovely yeah she's great in this um I mean. By no means is Big Trouble in Little China a perfect film. It does have some trappings that aren't super great when it comes to masculinity, when it comes to explorations of race and complex emotions, but it is fun, kind of dumb, but it's really near and dear to my heart. I'm so glad that we got to watch it once again and that I've been able to kind of bring you a little bit more into the fold of loving it. Maybe not as much as me, but liking watching it with me. <laughs> How did it make you feel? It made me feel reflective on changing movie tastes because I liked it quite a lot this time. Nice. You? Uh, it just made me happy like a little kid. All right. To the theater. Onward. We've talked about this before, but sometimes we don't see a film at Metro that we really want to see because it's only playing in the nine o'clock slot on a weeknight. And that's late for us when we have a half hour drive back home and have to work the next day. Mm -hmm. But if it's a particularly delectable choice, (laughs) we will risk tiredness to see it. Mm -hmm. And this next one, we couldn't pass up seeing it in the theater. So we went to Metro and we saw the 1998 horror mystery Ringu or Ring. It was directed by Haido Nakata and written by Hiroshi Takahashi and based on the novel by Koji Suzuki. It stars Nanako Matsushima as Raiko Asakawa, Hiroyuki Sanada as uh, Ruji Takayama, Rikia Otaka as Yochi Yochi Asakawa. There are more people, but those are kind of our like three biggies. Mm -hmm. Synopsis, if you've never heard of this. A reporter and her ex-husband investigate a cursed videotape that is rumored to kill the viewer seven days after watching it. What did you think of Ringu? So if you didn't pick up on it already, this is the original version of what would later become the U.S. version called The Ring. I was so excited to see this in the movie theater. Hence why you said we went out at 9.30 at night on a Thursday to go and see this. 
I've only seen this once before. I th- with me? Yeah. Oh. I don't know if I remembered that. I've seen it a few times. Yeah. And I'll talk about that in a bit. I want to quickly get out of the way that you and I both really love the American remake of The Ring. And yeah. we saw it before we ever saw this. Obviously, if you didn't see this one until we were already together. Yeah. And Metro is playing that next week. Yeah. So we aren't going. I don't want to talk about it at all other than to say that we did see it first. And it is such an integral part of both of our horror loving journeys. Mm-hmm that there's like an unfair love for it because of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas other people might critique it. We just can't get it out of our horror movie DNA. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have this film, Ring You, to thank for that. Exactly. So I want to just talk about Ring You today. I want to talk about my history with it because I didn't didn't remember that you hadn't seen it until I got you to watch it, I guess. Yeah. I saw this film when I had a very, brief friendship with a person that I didn't continue to be friends with. And I don't think for any particular reason, and I don't even know how we really became friends. Um, who I won't name because I don't talk to her anymore and don't know how to ask her for permission to talk about her. Uh, so me and this friend started hanging out a little bit and we were in junior high. I want to say grade seven or grade eight, like Mm. really young. And we would like make shitty horror movies together. A lot of, um, baby carrots with ketchup as severed fingers. Mm. She's also the person who introduced me to friends. Like we started watching friends together. And so mm. her and I, I would go to her house a lot. She lived in kind of like the East elementary part of Leduc, which was decently far away from my, where I lived, but close to where my dad lived after my parents separated and they separated when I was in grade seven. And so I think I would often like escape from my dad's house. Not that there was anything bad going on there. I just like didn't want to hang out at my divorced dad's house with his like new girlfriend and her kids Mm -hmm. and go hang out with this friend. And we did a lot of watching TV and movies together. A lot of it. And she really liked horror too. And her and me watched Ring You together. We like discovered that there was original version of this movie we really liked called The Ring. And we like wanted to watch the original And so I remember watching it like in her bedroom, in her house and her like mom being like super cool with us watching it. And for me, it started this shift from. If something was coming out that was an American remake, I wanted to watch the original, not the remake. Mm. And so this movie, like the American ring is often like lamented as like because it was successful. And I think because it is quite a cut above most American remakes of Asian horror films or just international horror films in general, that it like, because it was critically and commercially successful, that there was just this like wave of shitty remakes of international horror films. Mm -hmm. But for me, without the American remake of The Ring, I never would have watched Ringu and I would have never discovered, or I wouldn't have discovered till much later in life, that these original films in their original countries were so incredible mm-hmm. because this scared the shit out of me yeah. just like the original scares the shit out of me. And so I credit the American version of the ring with getting me to a place where much younger than I probably would have. I was watching international horror films. Mm, that's great. I love that. I love that you have that story for this. Cause I, I can't think of, I can't think of when that started for me. Well, part of the twinning with that is one of my favorite horror films of all time is called The Eye. Um, 
And for the longest time, I thought that it was just this like little indie that only I knew about. Mm. But then they, much after I had already been in love with it and watched it 20 million times, they did make a shitty American remake with Jessica Alba that I've never seen. Like mm -hmm. I, I refuse to see most American remakes of international horrors since the original The Ring. Mm -hmm. Um, And The Eye was a, a film made in Hong Kong and I had a friend whose parents had immigrated from Hong Kong and uh, she would go back and visit family with them every five years, very specifically every five years. And she brought this film The Eye back home with her one year and we watched it and really, really liked it. I think I like, she was a little scared of it, but I really liked it. <laughs> I was scared too, but I really, really liked it. And so seeing, like I already had that because of my friend and I, it just kind of sent me on this wave of like, I want to see the original films. And I was also, also, as I am now, like obsessed with trivia. It's like reading trivia for the American remake of The Ring, sending me to places where I was reading about Ringu. Mm. Right? Yeah. That's great. I, lo I love that you had that journey. My, mine's not as fantastic in that I just like watched The Ring with my silly friends over spring break and fuck me up. And it's been really important. And to then me. like 20 years later, I got you to watch the original. Yeah. <laughs> and like speaking about Ringu, um, and this will apply to the American one, but we'll, we'll, I'll speak specifically about Ringu is that what I love so much about this story is that it is equal parts scary and sad. Yes. And this on the scary side of things, this instills so much genuine fear in me which only gets worse in the U.S. version. But there's certain beats and visuals that are established in this that will never not give me the chills. Yeah, you and I have talked at length in past episodes about how we don't really get scared anymore. Yeah. But we were watching this in the theater and I was like feeling like really uncomfortable feelings of dread. Oh, yeah. Just just thinking about it gives me the chills. And I think that that's a very special kind of movie that yeah. get, that like that's fear. That's being scared. Well, so I was reading online that, again, the American remake of The Ring. As much as it brought a lot of bad things, which is like shitty proliferation of crappy, hollow American remakes of really impressive films. It did. It is credited by like people who look at. Um, the history of horror in North America with shifting from like the proliferation of slasher films to films that in the Wikipedia page for this talked about films that have a restrained focus on terror mm -hmm. and aren't just about like bloody violence. Yeah. Like because the seventies and eighties were all about slasher and it, it's the Wikipedia page credited this like, the American remake of the ring and the Blair witch project with like together turning the tide to having these more like terror based, like this thing that like you can't even explain it, but an image or an idea like just gets under your skin and seeps into your heart and, and you can't help but feel so upset. Well, and I think there's something just about the patience in this film and the subtlety. I mean, it's really interesting because pretty soon uh, on October, Friday the 13th, they're going to be showing the first Friday the 13th. But we saw the trailer. They put the trailer for Friday the 13th before this movie. And it's, it's, it's exactly that. It is really jarring to think about looking at the trailer for the original Friday the 13th and then going into Ring You and watching that and just 
while they're both firmly set in the same genre. They're, they're so do, different. They're doing such different things. And like, yes, there are decades separating them, but just the approach to the genre is very, very different. There's a terror and a fear that I experience in movies like Ringu. And there's moments of this in like, say, Skinamarink is one of the more recent ones mm. where I feel out of control scared. Yeah. Where it's like, in a slasher film, you think of what could I have done differently or even in a soft film, right? Of like, mm-hmm. how would I escape that trap? But here there's this feeling of like, you can't escape it. Yeah. And how how will I? When can I? When will it let me? Like there's this pervasive feeling of lack of control that isn't embodied. And that's scarier, right? Mm-hmm. It's a force you can't tackle. And that's part of what I think I love so much about both versions of the ring is that the attempt in the film is to try and break the curse. Mm-hmm. It's not to fight the entity. Yeah. It's to try and like find a way to like end this. And like where it goes is horrifying. Like the end of the film is one of the like, most upsetting things I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. But it's also, like I said, it's equally parts scary and horrifying to sad and heartbreaking. Like the journey to discovery about the tape's origins is heartbreaking. And it's just a journey of grief and sadness and and rage. Rage like, and like just wanting to see the world burn. Yeah, there's this. Yeah. You know, this would this make me feel like we need to do a deep dive on it so we can really, really talk about it. But there's this way in which this film is saying, like grabbing the viewer by the throat. And there, it feels like there's commentary in this, even though it's through this like story of Sadako, right? Mm-hmm. Of like when something unjust happens, everybody needs to know about it. It's not enough for it to be one person. Mm-hmm. I want everybody to know. I mm-hmm. want everyone to know what happened to me. Mm-hmm. Right? And and being angry about that. And that actually pairs quite well with the last film we watched this week. Um, But with very, very different endings. I don't know. This film is just, it's just phenomenal. And when we were, I was so excited to see this in the theater and the theater was really rowdy and like really, really like chatty during the, the not commercials, the trailers. And I was really worried. I was like, I, I think I turned to you and I said, if people stay loud, let's leave because Mm -hmm. It's really late. I've seen this movie before and I just wanted to see it on the big screen. Mm -hmm. But then as soon as like the logo came up, Mm -hmm. pin drop silence for the rest of the movie. Like it was, it was kind of startling of how quiet it just got got. immediately. And it was just so, so, so amazing. And I feel so grateful to have had the chance to see this on the big screen because without Metro cinema playing this, I would never see it on the big screen. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's a film from 1998 that isn't from North America. Yeah. And it was so much scarier on the big screen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the the scares and the things that stick with me from this movie were amplified and made way worse in the best way seen in the theater. It's so well executed. It's such a good story that obviously translates well into different languages and from different visions of different filmmakers. Uh, And it's got a mystery angle to it, right? Like there's a... And a compelling one. Yes. Yeah. And like you care about like Rico. Yeah. And like her 
figuring this out. Like it's, I think this movie is brilliant. I don't know. I really love it. I think it's chilling. I think it's sad. I think it's smart. I think it's such a pivotal moment in horror cinema for me, but also for the world in terms of like different types of scares. And I know that it's not unique to what was happening in Japan in horror film, Mm -hmm. but I feel like it's just the one we turn to that like got the world's attention. Yeah. Um, so we'll be covering the U S version on next week's episode, but if you are at least the littlest bit interested and have never seen the ring or ring you, I, I would suggest starting with ring you and then watching the ring, uh, and then tuning into our episode, <laughs> uh, where we unpack that one because they are, I think it's a rarity where you can have two versions of the same film and both of them are just as good, but in their own unique ways. And I don't doubt that if this was the one I saw first, I might not really like the American one. Yeah. But I really love both of them. Yeah. And it was such a gift to see this in the theater. I loved it so much. Yep. How did it make you feel? Full of fear and sadness in the best way. How did it make you feel? It's creepy crawly under my skin. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is this is the stuff that gets to me and doesn't go away. And I'm like laying awake at night. So scared. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm able to like get that away now, but this this movie has in the past kept me awake at night. It is again another thing I'm so grateful for that not only do we have this overlapping love of horror movies, but this overlapping uh of what our greatest fears are from horror movies that we share in the horror genre we also align with what our favorite types are yeah like it's it's pretty nice to know that if something absolutely that i find absolutely horrifying is happening on the screen i'm probably feeling the same way you're feeling the same way yeah yeah okay we're back to a mystery movie pick and i really did think that we owned this and I really wanted to watch it. And so we digitally rented it, which we almost never do. Yeah. Um, I picked the 1989 fantasy horror thriller. Fantasy is a weird choice, but <laughs> all right. Pet Cemetery. That is S-E-M-A-T-A-R-Y, Cemetery. Directed by Mary Lambert. And the screenplay was written by Stephen King based on his novel. It stars Dale Midkiff as Lewis Creed, Denise Crosby as Rachel Creed, Fred Gwynn as Judd Crandall, Brad Greenquist is Victor Pascal or Pascal. Uh, Miko Hughes is Gage Creed and Blaze Birdhall as Ellie Creed. Synopsis. After tragedy strikes, a grieving father discovers an ancient burial ground behind his home with the power to raise the dead. Oh, baby, is that a good synopsis? What did you think of Pet Cemetery? I was writing my notes for this and I have so much to say about this movie and I didn't think that was going to be the case. But I'll kick things off with saying just kind of a bit of a cute story is that you you and I are our count for movies that we've watched this year is a little bit skewed from each other. You've watched a couple more than I have, but this was going to be whatever you picked was going to be my 300th movie. Renew was my 300th movie, but whatever you picked would be mine. And you were a little bit like you wanted to watch Pet Cemetery. But you were like, oh, my God, I feel so much more pressure now that I know it's going to be your 300 movie. I don't want it. I don't want this to blow ass and you have a shit 300th movie of the year. 
I'm like, no, just pick what you want to pick. Like it's, it's fine. Um, yeah, th- th- this was, a, I'll just say this was a good 300th pick. I'm not mad about it. Okay, good. It's good. But something I love about this is that you and I, we kind of alluded to it when we were talking about people under the stairs is that we share a similar journey with this film in that we both watched it, especially we recognized it on this watch. We both watched it when we were too young to be watching yeah. this movie. This is one of those movies where I'm like, people probably aren't going to agree with what we have to say about it, especially if they've never seen it and they go and watch it now based on us talking positively about it. Mm-hmm. But I saw this when I was so young and it scared me so badly, but also there's such a deep emotional core to it that I think influenced my desire or like the horror movies I love the most have an emotional core. They have a sadness or they have like an exploration of something human mm-hmm. at the heart of it. And I saw this when I was so young that it's just embedded into me. And I thought I was going to watch it and think it was terrible and yeah. be like, I can't believe this scared me. Yeah. But honestly, I still really liked it. Yeah. Uh, I'm in the same place. Like, yeah, I watched it way too young. My parents owned it on VHS. And I even just remember the cover of it with Pascal staring into camera, AKA my soul. (laughs) And then the ominous cemetery below that. And then the tagline of sometimes dead is better scared me. But all of that again, coalesced into scaring me the way that I, I like. Yeah. Like this really scared me, but I also kept returning to it. Like I've watched this a lot and you and I, I don't know that, I don't think we've ever watched it together. No. But we've talked about it a lot. Yeah. Because there's a couple, there's a very particular moment in this that upset me so much as a kid that I can't shake being upset by it in any other time that I see it. It's like one of the, it's, this is funny because the American remake of The Ring, and it doesn't quite hit as hard in the original. And then this have like the two things I'll genuinely close my eyes for in a film. Yeah. Um, and the the moment in the ring, there's a similar moment to it in the movie Sleepy Hollow. Yes. And those are like the two things that I like. <laughs> yeah, this, again, we, you and me are like just deadlocked here on what uh, just scares the piss so out So we'll of talk us. about that next week with the American in the ring. I don't want to get into that now. But in Pet Cemetery, it's the Achilles heel. And anything with an Achilles heel still like deeply upsets me to this day. And it's just like buried into my little kid's psyche that like that because the first time I ever saw it, it was so shocking mm-hmm. and it was so upsetting. And so like seeing it in Kill Bill is the other kind of moment that is very um, sharp in my mind. But I know I've seen it in other things and I'm always just like when it happens and I'm not expecting it, I feel like I'm going to die. Yeah. No. If I'm expecting it, I'll like kind of wince, close my eyes and like I'll, I'll be OK. But if it happens out of nowhere, I'm just like, oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you. Um, Something I want to share, too, that I alluded to a little bit earlier was that I grew up with my mom always reading Stephen King books. Like, the majority of my memories, there will always be a Stephen King book on a coffee table (laughs) that my mom is in the middle of reading or rereading. And I remember this one, all like Pet Cemetery, when she would read it, I remember this one always wigging her out. Like, I... I know that book she, is good. I know that she has read me the ending to it. I haven't read it. I want to read it, but she has read me the ending. You have read me the ending <laughs> a few times. And it just and I know like looking online, like this is kind of regarded in a lot of Stephen King fan circles as his creepiest book. And that's just like such a vivid memory 
for me is just like her describing the language that Stephen King is using. And I just think his knack in the Stephen King things that I've read and and what you've told me about from books I haven't read is that his words and descriptions, they're they're so good. He's got such yeah. a lock on his language and his way of describing things. Like the ground is sour is so fucking good. Yeah. And he's, so creepy. He's I think he sometimes can get such a bad rap because he's a populist writer. Like people like him, but sometimes people are popular. Like he's kind of the Steven Spielberg of horror books. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people are popular because they're good and he's written some stinkers for sure. Mostly by his own admission when he was like coked out, but Stephen King means so much to me. Nobody in my family was reading Stephen King. I started reading Stephen King as a, I abandoned goosebumps really fast and went to fear street when I was probably too young for fear street. Cause goosebumps is kind of like elementary age. And then fear street is meant to be more teenagers, but I was reading fear street at the age when I was supposed to be reading Goosebumps in that lineage of horror literature, also the like um, those books we have, the kids books with the scarecrow in the flesh and uh, scary stories to tell in the dark are in that of like my love for horror, but horror literature. And so I, the first Stephen King book I ever read, I think was the shining and I was in elementary school. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that quickly followed with like it and Pet Cemetery was definitely an early one. And I, I really love it. We definitely have like well over a thousand books in our house. Mm-hmm. And I have one full shelf dedicated to Stephen King. Mm-hmm. And it is just like triple quadruple stacked. Yeah. My mom buys me this new Stephen King book every year for Christmas. It's in my stocking. And this year I text her and I said, mom, there's a new one called Holly. Please get it for me. <laughs> um so this summer in my cataloging journey, I cataloged all my Stephen King books. I own 84 copies of Stephen King books. Nice. Some of those are like, I think I have like three copies of Dreamcatcher and I don't know <laughs> why. Um, I think sometimes people just like grab me. In the past, people would just like get me a Stephen King book from a thrift store if they saw it. So I mm-hmm. have some duplicates. And for a long time, my mom would get me Stephen King hardcovers if she saw them at a thrift store because she knew that like it means something to me to try and have like first editions of his books or at least just hardcovers, like read the soft covers and have the hardcovers as part of a collection. Mm -hmm. I just, Stephen King just means so much to me. And and you can feel Stephen King in this version because he wrote the screenplay. Mm -hmm. It feels so true to his vision in a way that like not all adaptations of his work do. Yeah. Um, And that's, I think what people find hammy about it. Like Judd Crandall as played by Fred Gwynn is a very Stephen King character. Oh yeah. No, big time. And is it hammy? Yes, but that's like, that is a quintessential king archetype. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I don't have as much experience reading Stephen King. I have read quite a bit of Stephen King. I, I Again, like I read The Green Mile in fifth grade. <laughs> like I was reading stuff <laughs> when I was quite young as well. And I grew up with a lot of Stephen King around. But I, and I am privy to those King Kingisms and mm-hmm. the things he brings to his characters and his storytelling, and this is no exception. I mean, this is such a fantastical yet horrific exploration of grief via Stephen King in the way yeah. that he does it. And yeah, I would say like the weakest point of this movie is probably some of the acting. Like it's not particularly strong, um, or it's a bit melodramatic. Yeah, or emotionally moving for me, but it. it got me thinking 
post watching this, like it just makes me think of what could have been like thinking of grounding it like a green mile, even like with like a Tom Hanks level of performance for Lewis or even like Mike Flanagan getting his hands on this and like bringing in what he brought to Hill House or even treating the character of Pascal kind of like what he did with Gerald's game, you know. Mm. But I will say, though, I would say that Judd is the most compelling and complex character in this story for me. Yeah, and I think that's fleshed out a lot more in the book because in this you think, hey, if you knew what was going to happen, why did you ever suggest it? But I think what keeps me coming back to Pet Cemetery, and that even with some of the like overacting aside in this, and I think it's, it's yes, there are moments of it, but there's also some like good moments yeah, of yeah, acting yeah. in this and, and some very gory and also just some very creepy things that have like seared into our psyches. Um, this movie, we said that we were, we're there were multiple moments where we're like, this is profoundly fucked up and sad. I can't believe we were watching this when we were single digits old. And there's some profoundly like horrifying imagery. Oh, yeah. Like really upsetting. Like who was letting us watch this? <laughs> we were not being supervised well enough. Um, but I think like what I find so compelling about this, and this is why Stephen King to me is such a strong writer, is the core of the horror is always human emotion. Yes. Like this is the thing that I'm missing in John Carpenter films. Yeah. Right. That exists in Stephen King's books and in the best adaptations makes their way into the films as well, which is that at its heart, Pet Cemetery is about a person who's not ready to deal with grief. Yeah. And it starts with your daughter is too young to deal with grief. But the fact of the matter is grief will come to you no matter your age, no matter what the impetus for that grief is and we shouldn't try and like this film is suggesting to us through the genre of horror that if we try to escape grief we will only bring ourselves more grief oh man and they give judd i almost i, I almost welled up a little bit they give john a keanu reeves level line judd? up yeah 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 sorry they give him a keanu reeves level line about grief and and moving on Keanu Reeves, most famously, when asked by Stephen Colbert, what do you think happens when we die? Keanu Reeves said, I think that the ones that love us will miss us. He said, I know. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ones who love us will miss us. Do you remember Judd's line? Yeah, so they're talking about his daughter and her cat. And she's really young. She's like elementary age. And he says, like, she's too young to know about death. But one day she'll learn the truth about it. The death is when the pain ends and the happy memories begin. Like that's so fucking good. And 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 I think what the tragedy of this film is, is that Judd knows that. And yet he thinks she's too young to understand it. And what we see through the film is it actually doesn't matter age. It's about being willing to face grief head on. And and we anyone who's listened to this show knows that like grief is my jam. Yeah. Um. And like being able to talk about the reality of grief and not trying to bury it and suppress it. And I just finished doing a film study of the village with my grade 10 students. That's the main point of the village too. Like there's a line by, um, oh, what's his name? Matt I. Moody. Oh, Brendan Gleeson. Brendan Gleeson. Brendan Gleeson has a line in the village. The village is also a much maligned film that I really, really like and think is much better than people give it credit for. So he says near the beginning of the village, his young son has just died. And he says to Joaquin Phoenix's character, Lucius, he says, we can try you. People can run, try to run from sorrow as we have, but sorrow will find you anyway. Mm-hmm. And the core of the village, the core of Pet Cemetery, the core of a lot of other films that I like 
that I love is that you can't escape grief. And in trying to, you will only make things worse. You will only cause more pain to yourself and others. And I think through this idea of like the pet cemetery and the like coming back to life, Stephen King so horrifically, but also so beautifully emotionally portrays that, that like you have to face your grief head on. You cannot escape it. And it's just like the thing about grief and the way it's explored here and in the other things you mentioned is grief in itself is just so profoundly human. Well, like yeah, we will, we will all encounter it mm-hmm. and we can feel like there's an age at which you're too young to encounter it. But the, I mean, it just is what it is. It happens when it happens and that fucking sucks. I mean, how many times have we cried on this show because of a dead dad or a dead friend or a loss of some kind? Like, yeah, we don't get to choose the moments that this happens to us. All we can do is choose to actually allow it to exist in us mm-hmm. and move through us in the waves that it will and attempt to heal through it rather than suppress it. And just acknowledging that your grief can change and and evolve and that it there's not necessarily like a button on it just because you've cried your biggest cry for that thing you're grieving that doesn't mean that it's over. That could be the start of things and your relationship with that could be something you don't confront for maybe even years after the initial thing happens. It also hits you out of nowhere. Like the other day I was, I love looking at my Facebook memories and the other day I was, um, a Facebook memory came up where it's just a back and forth conversation with me and our friend Carlin who passed away recently Mm -hmm. about Amanda Palmer. And uh, like I'm in a photo with her and he goes like, damn, Kylie, you got moves. (laughs) And we just kind of went back and forth on it. And and I think it ended with me being like, you don't even know, Carlin. And he's like, no, I don't. We'll talk about it next week at band practice. And, (laughs) you know, that like that aliveness of the conversation just Mm. highlights how that conversation won't happen again. Yeah. And also like gives validity to the fact that like that relationship was real. Yeah. You know, um. So grief will continue to move through me mm-hmm. in that loss and in other losses. And I think this film, while not perfect, and I'd like to see a better version of it, I agree. I think Mike Flanagan, I, the, the whatever, the newest version of it is absolute shit. Yeah. And loses any of the emotional nuance that is in the original book and, and is coming through in this um, 1989 film. Because the moment, the big moment, the big moment of grief in this movie is mm-hmm. awful. It's yeah. gutting. It's done very well. Yeah, absolutely brutal. I want to talk a little bit about the things that truly creeped me out and still scare me about this. So there is some stuff with the character of Pascal that is very reminiscent of stuff in The Sixth Sense. Yeah, you and I had like a very... We were scared by The Sixth Sense in the same way when we were younger. Yes. And we agreed as we were watching this film that Pet Cemetery scares us and makes us sad in a similar way to The Sixth Sense, although I think The Sixth Sense is a far superior movie. Yeah. But to me, like reflecting on that, like it's probably like the little Elliot that lives inside of me that's scared and I'm just wanting to protect him. But that little Elliot is the one that's giving me the chills because <laughs> yeah. he watched it, he watched this movie. He's just such a little nugget. Um, And yeah, there's like some stuff questionably handled, but that really scared the piss out of me with the character of Rachel's sister. 
Yeah, there's some like nasty ableism happening in that. And also, I don't know how much Pet Cemetery is the start of this, but the trend in horror of having like a scary woman made visually scarier, and this is all in quotation marks, by having her played by a man. Yeah. So there's some fucked upness in that, but I don't think either you or I can detach from the fact that the character of Zelda really scared us as a kid. Yeah. The character of Zelda is meant to be a horrifying character. Although the impetus for why is fucked up. Yeah. Also, this this is another use of the trope of a indigenous burial ground being haunted or the device for evil. Yeah, not cool. Isn't great at all. But what is great are some of the practical effects in this are fucking aces. Including in the final scene. Holy crap. Yes. Horrifying. And the Ramon song over the end credits. Stay for the end credits because the song fucking rips. Yeah, I like, I don't know which Saw movie it was that they had like a song written for Saw with like Hello Zep in the background. <laughs> right. But like I am all about the trend of like writing an original song for the credits of a horror film, especially having a band do it. I've been, we, you and I have been singing it. I don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery, like nonstop. <laughs> yeah. It's really it's good. It's a good song. And it's the Ramones. So it's like catchy as fuck. Yeah. You know, just to wrap up my thoughts on it, I, I did not hate this at all and i would actually rewatch it semi often i yeah, think like i think, I, think I would add it to the rotation i'd watch it every halloween i think it's got an emotional core that's actually deeply moving i think there's some very impressive practical effects there's some moments with like gage that you can clearly tell he's like a puppet but like also that's important because we shouldn't be doing that with a real child yeah. <laughs> and this is a really intense story to be telling with a real child yeah. so yeah you know i can i can suspend my disbelief in those moments not all of the acting is fantastic, but I think by and large, it's a, it's a pretty good movie. Yeah. And I'd love to see a, a stronger version of it made by somebody who really believes in the heart of the book and not just capitalizing on the Stephen King name. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the way that they just came out with a remaster or a remake of The Last of Us that is 100% just the original game, but it just looks a lot better. That's what I want here. Yes. Take just do that again but with stronger acting. Yeah. Yeah. In writing my notes, I was, again, I was surprised with just how many thoughts and feelings I had about this. And I, I bumped it from a three and a half to a four. Whoa. You went into letterbox and we were like, I'm changing that. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed it and am not at all upset that it is my 300th movie of the year. Win, win. Hell yeah. How does Pet Cemetery make you feel? Just taken aback by the power it still has over me. <laughs> how about you? Pet Cemetery makes me feel a deeply profound sadness under all of the creepiness. Yeah. And I think that that is, is incredibly moving. I, I mean, I just want to say that um, there's always the book. <laughs> <laughs> I will read it one Reading day. is important. Maybe that's the next book you read. I'll dig it out of my 84 triple stacked Stephen King pile for you to read. Stephen King books can... Be really deceptive in that oh this is pretty thin open it up it has like fucking size four <laughs> font yeah. on the cheapest thinnest yeah. paper with no chapters <laughs> christ i love him though i love old king yeah hey last movie yeah so you kind of swindled me i i ended up burning a mystery movie pick <laughs> not on 
purpose. No. Um, but we were looking for a little matinee to watch. And I picked the 2012 animation adventure comedy Paranorman. It was directed by Chris Butler and Sam Fell, as well as written by Chris Butler. It stars Cody Smith McPhee as Norman, Anna Kendrick as Courtney, Christopher Mintz-Plasse as Alvin, Tucker Elbrizi as Neil, Casey Affleck as Mitch, Leslie Mann as Sandra, Jeff Garland as Perry, and Elaine Stritch as Grandma. These are all voices, by the way. Synopsis. A misunderstood boy takes on ghosts, zombies, and grown-ups to save his town from a centuries-old curse. What do you think of Paranorman? I really wanted to rewatch this because I think we've only seen it once. In the theater, yeah. And we really liked it in the theater. Yeah. Like, so we would have seen it in 2012, so over a decade ago. Um, and I've been wanting to rewatch it for a very long time. And as you alluded to, like, I was actually planning to pick this sometime soon. Or I was just going to say, hey, do you want to just watch Paranorman? But then you were like, oh, I want to do a mystery matinee. And then you picked it. So, yeah, well, that is what it is. Um, That's good alliteration. Mystery movie matinee. Mystery movie matinee. Sometimes we do mystery movie marathons, too. All those M's. <laughs> so I'll start with saying that, like, I will almost always give any... Is it Leica or Leica? It is Leica. Like I will give almost any Leica movie a try. The only one we haven't watched is The Box Trolls, and that's because I heard it was transphobic. Yeah, but I feel like we should watch it so that we can give voice to it. Yes. Um, but yeah, we are big stop motion heads, and Leica are and some of the best in the game. And especially if it's stop motion in the horror adjacent genre. Yes. Like, that's my jam. Like, Nightmare Before Christmas, Corpse Bride... Coraline. Cor- oh, Coraline's tops. Mm-hmm. Like Nightmare Before Christmas is so important to me because I've been watching it since I was so little. But Coraline is like the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is no exception to that. Like I love the love for horror that exists in this. There's a really great like Halloween homage. Mm-hmm. I read that uh, Chris Butler wanted to approach this from the horror genre because he particularly thought that the horror genre is so great at social commentary Mm -hmm. Um, and he wanted to use that as a vehicle for looking at like the difficulties that kids face. Like that was very much his intention. And I think there's a very clear um, loving dedication to how night of the living dead does that Mm -hmm. through the focus on zombies in this. And I feel like the horror genre, especially more recently is becoming less and less accessible to little nuggets and younger yeah. kids. So I think that's really, but this smart. felt like one that like we could show like our four, almost five year old niece, like now. Yeah. Who is showing an interest and genuine. She mm. likes things that freak her out. Yeah. And that's, that's our people. <laughs> I do think, you know, in, in, in rewatching this, there's moments where it lags a little bit for me. There's like some real five out of five stuff in it, but it it doesn't like hold my attention as much for the whole thing like it did when we saw it in the theater. Yeah, it starts to kind of lean into what I'll call like little kiddiness. Yeah. Um, In a way that like if we're comparing Leica films in a way that Coraline never did for me, like Coraline, I, I felt maintained a, the same kind of tone throughout, whereas this kind of gets talking dog and up a little bit. Yeah, I think where there is stuff that little kids would like in Coraline, it's in that like creepy whimsical way, like Bobinski and 
you know, the talking cat and all of that is coming from like a more like whimsical dream slash nightmare scape Alice in Wonderland type thing than a just like goofy. Yeah. Like it's, it's built into the like zaniness of the film itself Mm -hmm. um, in a way that I really like in a Beetlejuice way, Mm -hmm. you know? So this one, yeah, it lost me in moments and I, by the end of it, I do think like the overall message of it is maybe a little too pat. Mm. Like, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to say like, I'm just gonna say what the message is. The message is that when people are afraid, sometimes they do things and we should be empathetic to the fact that fear breeds bad actions. But I think like that's a bit of a cop out. Yeah. Like when I compare that, like I said, the climactic scene in Paranorman is actually quite similar to me to some of the climactic stuff in the ring. Mm-hmm. And yet to me in Ringu in the ring, the ultimate message is like sometimes rage is the answer mm-hmm. and like it is okay to be angry. And this seems to be more like, well, you know, I know that person did that really awful thing to you, but they were scared. And like, there's an accountability cop out in that, that I think just because it's a kid's film doesn't mean that we can't have nuance. Because I I feel like there is like a little bit of nuance. Like, I feel like it does have a great message in there about being yourself and seeking understanding from others and accepting that not everyone can accept who you are and that's okay. Yes. That's the part of the film I still love and I think is done really well. I think it's look at like larger institutions of harm is not done well. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's actually really important that in kids films, we try and do that in a nuanced, but accessible way. And I, and I think it gets a little too easy and a little too oversimplified in that. But I agree with you. I love that it's ultimate look at like, appreciating people for who they are and like loving yourself for who you are and like accepting that some people won't is, is really, I think that's what they set out to do more than the other stuff. And that comes through and it comes through strong. Yeah, no, I agree. I think there's also like a nice little piece in here too. That isn't as it's not the focal point, but there is a nice little piece in here about taking accountability and admitting when you're wrong. Yeah. And especially coming from an adult I think that that is, I think that's really important. But yeah, like I, and some other takeaways for me was like, yes, this is cute. This is funny. I think this has some, like you said, some really great references to famous horror movies and the horror genre. It also, it's kind of fucked up that it kind of alludes to, speaks to the Salem witch trials a little bit. And, that that kind of being the ugly past of this town, which they end up like branding the entire town <laughs> around it, which is kind of fucked. Yeah. But also kind of fun. Yeah. Um, stop motion wise. I love it. The tactility of it. Yeah. The, like gorgeous. Like I just want to pick them all up and there's some really hilarious stuff with Norman's hair that I think is so good. Yeah. It's a good bit. Um, it's a really sweet movie. And I, and I do find the climactic scene so really powerful. And I yeah. think that it is scary and visually stunning and also quite sad in a ringu way. Yeah. Um, and it's for kids, so it probably shouldn't get too scary. <laughs> but, you know, if you liked Paranorman when you were little, you'll probably like ringu when you're older. Yeah. Totally. I think they're actually a really nice pairing with each other. Yeah. Um, when you're an appropriate age to watch them. Mm-hmm. more than anything, this just made me want to rewatch some of the other Leica films that we, like I want to rewatch Kubo and the 
two strings especially. Um, and then I would like to try Missing Link again. I feel like I was kind of like I liked it, but in a kind of a lukewarm way. I think it's my least favorite of what we've seen by them. It, my recollection is that it was the most little kitty. Yeah. Of the Leica films. And but I love that his name is Susan. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> the best best name a woman can have. <laughs> <laughs> Which um, is just very funny. Because uh, our niece really liked that name when she was little. Yes. And I would like to I would like to watch the box trolls and form a educated opinion on it. Agreed. But yeah, this is lovely. It's not my favorite thing, but I'm I was so happy to revisit it. And I'm it's been a minute for Leica, I feel, and I imagine that's pandemic related. They have two new ones coming out that sound really exciting. Really? Yeah. Cool. Made by the same person who also made Kubo, I think. Mm. Um, and they sound really, really good. I'll just give a little update on them. So one is so he his name is Travis Knight, and he directed Kubo, just Kubo. But he also made the movie Bumblebee. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so his newest one that's coming out is called Wildwood. And it is. Oh, it's based on the um, book that Colin Malloy and his wife did. Oh, shit. Yeah. That's cool. Which is, yeah, really, really cool. And it just, oh, it just man. looks, it looks great. And then the other one that they're going to be doing is called The Night Gardener. You know what that means? That we're going to be getting some. December is soundtrack. Probably. It's gonna I feel like that's gonna have some like over the garden wall. Yeah. Like mm. level of quality. Like where the music and the animation and the story are all gonna come together in a really autumn autumnal fall, <laughs> cozy autumnal. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um that I'm really excited about. And then yeah, I can't I the other one is is based on a book and it's called The Night Gardener and I don't really know much about it but the cover looked creepy and that makes me excited. Cool. That's great. I'm glad that they're still doing stuff. The stop motion takes a while, you know? But I we're kind of all in on Leica and with the exception of not having seen the box trolls which we will watch and we'll form we'll we'll, we'll figure out how we feel about it. I I like what they do. Yep. I agree. How do you make you feel? A comforting love for kids horror. Mm. You just a warm happiness. While it's not my favorite, I will revisit it semi-often. And yes. I think it's a good one. And I think it's a good one for kids. I agree. Okay, dads. That's it. The dads of the week. Bad dad of the week is a twofer for me. Me too. So I bet they're the same person. Uh, I picked man and woman. Yeah, I picked mommy and daddy <laughs> from, from people, people under the, the stairs. <laughs> I mean, they're both just sick in the head, man. They're cruel. They're abusive. And they have a demented way of parenting and navigating the world. Screw them. They stink. Yeah, I don't really have anything else to say. Come on. They suck. So, man and woman, don't be don't our, be our mommy and daddy. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Yuck. No, no mommy, no daddy. <laughs> All right, Rad Dad, who'd you pick? I I picked Victor, Victor Pascal. <laughs> Ooh, that's interesting. I picked Pascal. Nice. One of the things we didn't talk about in Pet Cemetery. Is that um, the character of Ellie can shine? A hundred percent. Like we're like, oh, this is part of the like Stephen King world where she's able to shine, and so she is connecting with Pascal, and he is like there. He very much reminds me of um, Halloran in The Shining, as like this figure who is there to protect this child. 
But Pasco isn't just there for Ellie. He's there for like he is attempting to do for the Crandall family what Judge Judd is failing to do. Judd wants to help them, but the advice he's giving them is bad. Mm-hmm. Pascal is actually trying very hard to get them to face their like emotional mm-hmm. shit. He's also honest with them when like this is as far as I can go or this is as much as I can do or like I'm sorry it's too late. Everybody else is trying to hide the truth from Ellie and he's giving Ellie the truth and he's trying to guide her through it. I don't know. I think Pascal is is good in a sixth sense kind of way. Yeah. Comparing him to Halloran in The Shining, actually, I would even I would even say like more Halloran in Doctor Sleep. Yes, 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 yes. Is even a better comparison. Just like the king version of Halloran. Yeah, 100%. I love that description of him. Um, I picked Norman from okay, Paranorman. Okay, I get it, yeah. Like he's just a sweet little nugget. He seeks and provides understanding with kindness. He's just genuine. He's just himself. And... I like that he is also inspiring. Like, I think that the way that he navigates himself and all the things I just mentioned are what attract other people to them, maybe even unknowingly. And I think that's really wonderful. It it makes him a really wonderful person. But as soon as you said Pasco, that was like really interesting to me. I mean, Norman will make a better graphic. (laughs) Pasco will be kind of gross. But I I do like like that's the kind of figure and character I like in Stephen King's shit. I think Pasco is in is a complex, nuanced dad figure. Whereas I think Norman is somebody that's learning how to love himself he's and kind of de facto. Yeah. He's more of a hero's journey character than a dad. Yeah, like if you say taking like kid characters, if you compare a Norman to like a short round. Or like a yeah. short round is that is who he is and who he will always be. And I can see that he's going to become Waymond R- Wang. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, I don't think that Norman's quite there yet. But yeah, Pascal, watch out for buses, my guy. <laughs> and be our dad. Be our dad, Victor Pascal. We should do a... Uh, we get sued into the ground by by Disney, but we should do a version of Be Our Guest. <laughs> be our dad. Be our, be be our dad. dad. Cool. Rad Rec time. So we had the, again, Metro Cinema always killing it. The um, wonderful gift of being able to see um, the short film Strange Way of Life by... Adriel Alamo Davar. Um, which we hadn't seen anything that he'd made, which is a shame and uh, overstep on our part because he's made some really well liked films that have like a huge place in the history of cinema. So Metro was doing a strange way of life paired with his other short film that stars Tilda Swinton, the human voice. And then with a Q and a um, from him afterwards, each of those being 30 minutes resulting in an hour and a half experience at the cinema um, but I think just seeing strange way of life would have been great too. I love that we got to see more something that he said in the Q and a really spoke to me where he's, you know, um, the interviewer said, this is getting a release. Like it's not like Metro cinema is the only place that's doing this. Like people can go and see strange way of life in the theater and it premiered at festivals and, and things like that. And it's got two of the biggest daddies. In Ethan Hawke and Pedro Pascal, ooh baby, gay cowboys, gotta like it. Yeah. Um, but the interviewer asked, like, 
you know, what does it mean to have this short film in, in theaters? And he said, I believe all film belongs in theaters. Like that's some Guillermo del Toro level shit. Talking uh, about Pinocchio and animation. Yeah. And it, that that resonated with me as well. But it particularly meant something to me because there's a lot of like letterbox talk and talk on Reddit about like people who in quotes pad their stats with short films and what should and shouldn't count towards your stats on letterbox. And I think that's such an elitist way of looking at things. A film is a film. And, you know, I talk about this even with like features, like, you know, Wendy and Lucy is like an 85 minute film and it's phenomenal. And anatomy of a fall is like a two and a half hour film and it's phenomenal. And I say this to my students about like the papers they write when they're like, how long it should it be? I say, however long it needs to be to say the thing you need to say. Mm-hmm. And I feel that way about all art. All art should be the length and the medium to say the thing you're trying to say. And so if it doesn't need to be said in two and a half hours, don't make it two and a half hours. If it need, if it can be said in five minutes, say it in five minutes. And I love that in such a simple way, he said, all film matters. Yeah. All film should be seen on a big screen. And it harkens back to what you're talking about with Dante's Inferno with like, Maybe there's a way we need cinema needs to be thinking about how to show short films. Don't charge the same price for it. Um, put it in between your features. I, I really like Metro does a thing sometimes where they have a short before a feature. Mm-hmm. So you get to see them both together. It was really great to see them. I really liked them both. And I really want to continue to explore his filmography. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, we didn't participate in this just because it's difficult for us because it takes place during the week. But uh, IFE, the Edmonton International Film Festival, has stellar short film programming that they do throughout the whole run of the festival. There are short films. uh, IFE is a Oscar qualifying festival. There are short films that premiered at IFE and went on to win Academy Awards. So you're seeing some of the best of the best in the world when it comes to short films and you're seeing them in the movie theater on the big screen and showing them your support. All film. All film is film, right? Yeah. So our rad. I was going to say that, but I'm like, is that silly? (laughs) No, it's not silly. Our rad rec is to watch some short films and engage with them in the same seriousness and level of appreciation that you would with a feature film. Because short film is its own beautiful medium that is just as relevant, just as meaningful, just as worthy of your time as a feature film. And log it how you want to log it. Log it how you want to log it indeed. Yeah. Don't let people be pee-pee poo-poo about your stats. They're your stats. Middle finger to letterbox deletists. Hell yeah. Stick it to the man. Eosis. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode of our regular show every Thursday. Like we mentioned, we're dropping another iteration of the Rad Rap about... IFE 2023. This spoiler up- free. Spoiler free. This upcoming Sunday, you can also go back and listen to our rad rap on the Saw series. Highly recommend it. Super fun. Until then, follow us and sign into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual letterboxed accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes, and we would absolutely love you forever if you share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for these people over the stairs this week. So until next time. On top of the stairs? (laughs) Above the stairs? (laughs) Yes. People. Uh, I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember. Not all dads have to be bad.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.